Reporters, thanks for being with us for another episode of the Arts Report. We are reporting to you live from the University of British Columbia, Vancouver campus on unceded Musqueam territory. In studio, we have myself, Christine, and Ashley. On today's show, we have several guests here to talk about the cool work that they're doing in, ar- in and around Vancouver. So let's get started. Up first, we have Mr. Paul Snyder. It's so great to have you. Thank you very much for being on our show. Oh, thanks for having me. You are the creator of The Music of Junk. Tell us, what is what is that? Well, The Music <laughs> of Junk is a, a show. It's a musical adventure uh, performed with instruments built from junk and recycled materials, and it's all original music. It's at the mm. Waterfront Theater uh, in November. And what ma- what inspired you to create something um, where the instruments are basically material that you would normally find in a garbage can? Right. Um, what inspired me? I've always been interested in sounds that are made from non-musical items. Mm-hmm. And in 2010, I put together a little YouTube video um, it was during the Olympics, and it was of the uh, of our national anthem with all animal sounds, and uh, it was received very well, and it played in a bunch of different radio stations across Canada. and And I thought, well, you know, that that's interesting. That's that's there's something there in terms of you know making music with items that are traditionally not musical and matching pitch, um, finding resonance in, in items that you wouldn't normally think can make a tone. I, I find that very interesting. Was that pretty difficult, though, trying to find a tone in an instrument that doesn't normally bring out, you know, like the C note or the D note or yeah, chords like a, at all? Like scale almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the hardest part. And, and I've had so many failures. I've been building <laughs> for two years. You wow. know, uh, the, the first iteration of the show was at the Fringe Festival here in Vancouver mm-hmm. last year. And so I built a bunch of instruments, but the the vision I had was much, much more grandiose, you know, mm-hmm. much bigger stage, much bigger instruments. But with the Friends show, you've got 15 minutes to set up, 15 to tear down because you're sharing the stage with other other um, acts. So you can only do so much. So I had everything on, on wheels, you know, and then we'd... Uh, Part, one of the hardest parts of the show was just getting everything on and off stage. Um, but the audience received it really well. Mm. And so when I was building those instruments, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I want to build a bass. Now, what, what mm. resonates 
with a bass sound. And so I went through a bunch of different things, and I finally figured um, a wheelbarrow would work very well. So I made a bass out of a wheelbarrow, and it sounds great. It sounds really good. Um, but the problem is you don't know what it's going to sound like until you build it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I spent you know, two, two or three weeks on this thing, and then once I started tightening the strings, the whole thing just started collapsing, and it's just disheartening mm. because it's your baby, right? So I had to take it apart and build, you know, restructure it. And so I finally got it to, to work and sounds great. And I've got a cello out of a garbage can, which, which really <laughs> sounds nice. And the, the resonance of a metal garbage can is just amazing. You, you wouldn't think that. I think it's incredible how resourceful you are in being able to well. use those kind of materials. Um, <laughs> I also did see that uh, 12 musicians you brought together to do this project. Um, tell me how you reached out to them with this idea and what were their reactions at first? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, uh, mo most of the parts were auditioned. So um, oh. I've, I've got a couple of people that, uh, that are friends and they're you know, kind of wacky enough to come along for the, the ride. Um, but auditioning people, you know, auditioning violinists and cellists and, and uh, you know, people that the percussionists, people that generally play in, in orchestras, um, part of the audition was to see how well they play their instrument. Mm -hmm. And then in the audition, I, um, I said, okay, put that away. And I gave them a pail. And mm -hmm. I had a pail. And I said, okay, let's have some fun. <laughs> and, and some of them, you know, weren't really into it. And some of them really, um, mm -hmm. you know, were, were engaged. And you could just see the fire in their eyes in terms of whether they would be a good fit for this because they've got to get on stage with, you know, the violinists. You know, the, the two that I've got are fantastic violinists, and they're always on stage with their, you know, pristine violin mm -hmm. in an orchestra. And now one, you know... It comes uh, in with some kind of, like, uh, oh. a, a violin-ish type of thing, but not really. That, that's right. Not really. And, and a lot of it is just the... Um, you know, what resonates, like one's made out of paper mache and a baseball bat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've, they've got to change a little bit of the way that they play it because it's heavier. It doesn't sit the same way as a vi violin wood on your shoulder. And, um, you know, you can't bow it the, the, the same way. You know, I, I tried to get it um, a, as uh, as free as possible so that they could use their technique but in, unless you're building a violin it, it, there's going to be differences mm -hmm. and so but the, but the you know these two violinists have um have really taken it on and um practiced using this this junk instrument to bring out the best sound that they can using the techniques that they have um and so you know same with the percussionist you know i built a drum out of the front end of a 1999 honda accord and so it's this big instrument drum instrument mm -hmm. and once we get it mic'd and and you know a bit of reverb on mm -hmm. it and everything it's just going to sound great um but uh, again you know a percussionist has to get on stage with a car and it's not something they <laughs> readily do it's not so. something they're used to either um one of the things i was thinking about how awesome um the show why the show is is you know if somebody who doesn't come from um a very like musical family or has um kind of a financial situation where they can't really buy, you know, the most expensive instruments. They could see how resourceful, you know, this show is and maybe try to practice their musical skills that way and grow their talent in that way. So I was wondering for you, like, what do you hope that the audience gets out of it? And what do you hope that it inspires in, um, I guess, different age groups um, mm -hmm. that come to see the show? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, with the Fringe show, I, I was really surprised because I was getting emails from parents afterwards telling me that their kids were going home and they were pulling out pots and pans wow. and banging on it. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that that's kind of a uh, fallout that I, I didn't really think would happen. I just wanted to put on a good show. Mm -hmm. And then I'm getting that and, and, you know, it's got a strong recycling theme. Um, but I, but I, w I was getting people talking to me about recycling and how, uh, you know, I didn't know you could do that with this, you know. And, and so really, if people go away from the show, number one, with, um, uh, with a renewed imagination as to uh, you can make music with, with anything. You don't have to be going to the store and, and, and using what everybody thinks you should use. And the second thing is walking away, just being reminded that, you know, recycle. It's a... It's very simple to do. Just recycle. It's a reminder. You see these instruments on stage um, built out of recycled material, so it's not hard to look at the junk that you've got um, and, and uh, you know, maybe reuse it or maybe second-guess things when you're about to buy it. You know, if, if people walked away just with that reminder, um, I'd be very happy. So tell us what junk you've brought into the studio today. 
Uh, I brought out a little bit of junk. Uh, this junk is a, a, a garden hose and a funnel, and I found the garden hose at the side of the road in Tawasson. Um, I actually found um, hundreds of feet of it, and uh, so I, I used that. I've got this big instrument called the balut instrument, and it's uh, I, I built um, 15 flute-like instruments out of PVC piping, okay. and I've hooked all of this hose to it, and I power it using balloons. So <laughs> you've got the air pressure of the balloons pumping air through these flutes, and then you, you play it by turning knobs on and off so mm. that you can play... Control uh, the pitch. And and control yeah. the pitch. It, well, yeah, so that you can play you know, a C, E, G uh, pipe together, and then you can turn that off and play an F chord, things like that. Um, because with the Fringe show, that's the one thing I was kind of missing was a, a kind of a sustained... Um, background um, sound. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how else to explain it. And so, um, so part of that hose, uh, I've got um, a thing here. I call it the grumpet. It's the garden hose trumpet, and <laughs> it, it makes a fantastic sound. You know, it, we're just looking at a piece of hose and a funnel stuck into it. You know, I use a trumpet mouthpiece. Um, Let's see what this sounds like. But I'll show like. you what it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit loud. It does. Yeah, I, I was in a high school band, and I'm actually really, really surprised. It's very clean sound yeah. too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and so, so that that's not difficult to do with a trumpet mouthpiece and a garden hose. Okay, somehow it just resonates very nicely. Um, the the trick is to, you know, I, I guess the size of the hose and cutting the hose to the right length based on what you're playing because you can only get so many notes out of it with, mm -hmm. with the overtones. If you took a trumpet and you unwrapped it, it would basically be this, and I'm holding up the hose. Mm. You know, that's a trumpet. And then the valves basically change, you know, how much hose the, the air is going through. So, um, you know, it, you could use your imagination basically and build a trump out of anything that's long and, and cylindrical. Then that actually kind of mm -hmm. ties into my question. My question is, when you look at a material, do you immediately see its resemblance to an instrument that you already know of? Or is it a whole different thing altogether in your head? And you're like, this kind of reminds me of this thing, and I want to make it with this thing and make a completely different new instrument that no one has ever heard of before. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, my, I, I always strive to look for a sound that's never been heard. I, I okay. think that's the optimal, right? Uh -huh. But a lot of the instruments are, you know, they're... The, there's only so many ways to make a sound. Yes. And, and so um, s a lot of the instruments are modeled after the families of instruments in an orchestra. You know, mm -hmm. I've got strings, um, resonating strings that will resonate, that will cause the air in some body to resonate and make a sound, right? I've got, um, you know, these woodwind-type mm -hmm. instruments where you blow air through and the air is causing the, 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 um, the instrument mm -hmm. to resonate. And so uh, when, I, when I look at something, I, I don't really say, oh, that kind of looks like a flute or, you know, mm -hmm. it's more um, w w can, can we get the air inside of that thing that I'm looking at to resonate? And if I can, you know, how do I do it? With, with a string, do I beat on it? Do I um, buzz it with a mouthpiece? You know what? And then once the air is resonating, how do you bring that sound out? Mm -hmm. And then once you've got that, what will that sound like? Because there's there's a lot of kind of white noise uh -huh. crap things that I've built. That doesn't really sound like music. It no. just sounds like a noise. I, exactly. Yeah. And, and I built this this really cool instrument. It's one of the coolest ones. It's called the saxicle. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a kind of a saxophone-type instrument built out of the handlebars of a bike. And um, the, the guy that plays it um, has just you know, taking it to new heights. <laughs> you know, w when you see him play it, we were at the Science Center two weeks ago doing a demonstration and, and in their center stage. And, uh, you know, he was, he, he was fooling around with it, and it was, just, uh, it was just amazing. People were just stopping and watching because he's got this big front end of a bicycle okay. hang hanging off of a pair <laughs> of jeans around his neck, uh -huh. making this beautiful sax sound. You know, because he's using a sax, like an alto sax mouthpiece oh, okay. to so cause does, the resonance. He yeah. does blow into the device. I was wondering, right. how does that even work? That yeah. sounds crazy. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and the key with this was, you know, the holes, drilling the holes, being able to figure out a fingering that will give him some, some options. Mm -hmm. so, so now the, the problem with it is, is that, and, and the problem with a lot of the instruments is, is that the, the range is very limited. 
And so I have a lot of respect for, you know, true saxophone builders <laughs> and violinists that builders because um, the range that they can get out of, you know, say a saxophone, it, it's amazing, um, all, all with the kind of the conical boring and all of that, right? It, it's really meticulous work. Um, out of a handle of a bicycle, we've got maybe seven or eight good notes. And he has a way of bending the notes with the, his fingers and his lips to make it really sound jazzy. So, you know, it, it does what it needs to do. But if ever you know, we're going to use it in a jazz band or something, somehow we'd have to expand that range to, mm -hmm. you know, two or three octaves. So, um, you know, there's, there's good and bad building with these, <laughs> with these junk instruments. That is yeah. really fascinating, and I think really kudos to you for not yeah, um, for finding ways to make these instruments sound more than just a cacophony yeah. of noises, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so I guess before we um, end off our interview, why don't you remind us all of uh, the dates of the performance, um, the where it is, and how we can get tickets? Oh, great. Mm. So if you go to www.themusicofjunk.com, mm. everything's there. All one there. word. Yeah, all one word, exactly. Themusicofjunk.com. Um, got some great pictures of the instruments there, a lot of information about the show, and then you can get tickets through um, through that website as well. It's at the Waterfront Theater on Granville Island, mm -hmm. November 18th to the 22nd. Now, I'm also doing uh, an afternoon seminar at 1 p.m. on the Wednesday for mm. you know musicians, music students, whoever's interested in wanting to see you know, the instruments um, or, or get an explanation of how the instruments were built and, and hear a demonstration. I won't have the orchestra there for the, uh, the seminar. But it's more of an in instructional thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the show, 7.30, uh, Wednesday to Sunday that week. And, um, you know, there's 12 people in the cast. It's a, it's a stage full of huge instruments. I've, I've got a 10-foot a structure of 4-inch um, drainage tubing. And it sounds great. <laughs> you know, you would, like, what does this sound like, right? But when I'm, you yeah, I'm there, curious. Yeah. I am curious. What does the drainage pipe sound like? Uh, I know. If that it's doesn't get you out to the show, we don't know what will. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a it's a great show. You know, it's been my labor of love for for two years, and I I'd, um, I think um, I think people really enjoy it. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today, Paul. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. For everyone who's listening, we are going to be right back after a few short commercials. Thank you. Have an interest in how your bike works? Want to learn more? Then come on out to the AMS Bike Co-op's Intro to Mechanics Workshop. This workshop is a four-session series on Thursdays from 6.30 to 8.30, starting on November 5th. In the sessions, you'll learn how bikes work and how to do simple repairs and maintenance. There will be plenty of hands-on demonstrations, so bring your own bike to class to practice on. For all the information, prices, schedule, and to register, head on over to www.bikecoop.ca. How much do you know about bikes? Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one -on -one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished, guaranteed used bicycle, or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen and then get riding. But what if I'm right? The debut album by Revered releases on November 4th, along with the spectacle of a show at the Fox Cabaret. Come celebrate composer and frontman Emmett Hall's musical indulgence into a pseudo-new-wave prog rock catharsis of ego, an effigy to be truly revered. Doors at 7.30, tickets are $5. Visit revered.bandcamp.com for more. Every day I know, everything will go the length I'm willing to admit. 
Welcome back to the Arts Report. In studio, we now have Philippe Castagner. Oh, close enough. Oh, close enough? Castagner. Oh, so sorry. Um, <laughs> who is a regular performer at the Metropolitan Opera and who will be performing at the next UBC-sponsored opera, Manon. Oh, oh very good. Goodness. Very good. So tell me about Manon. Oh. What is it? Oh, boy. Well, um, I, I guess the, the best thing we could say about it today is uh, it's a commentary on the relationship between the, the genders. Uh, in this case, only male and female. We don't include, you know, everybody who's uh, non-gender conforming and everything like that. Uh, but it's, it's about the consequences uh, for uh, behaviors and how they're unequally applied to men and women, if mm-hmm. you ask me. Uh, and also in the classes. Uh, so we have this lead character, Manol, who's a woman from a lower class who falls in love with a nobility, um, Chevalier de Grieux, who I play. I was, gonna, I was just about to ask, you seem very noble in appearance. Oh, well, Chevalier. thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing noble in my background. I, I, I don't think so. No, no royalty as far as I know. But uh, thank you. <laughs> Uh, we do have to stand up straight as opera singers, I guess. <laughs> so, was this an opera created by the UBC Opera Cast, or when was this right. created? So, this was uh, written by Jules Massenet, yeah. a famous, famous mm-hmm. composer, who uh, I guess could be the considered the first, uh, he's a, a Romantic era composer, and the first to uh, reform opera in a way so that the, the tunes are more inspired by the speech patterns rather than having speech patterns always conform to the mm-hmm. melody and the idea of tunes and musical mm-hmm. structure. Uh, so th- we have a lot less set pieces, uh, as in um, not, not what you see on the set, mm-hmm. but, oh, here's the trio, and here's the aria, and uh, so it's a much looser structure, and things kind of proceed in a normal conversational way, except for times when the the dramatic nature of what's going on actually calls for mm-hmm. repeating yourself, mm-hmm. which often happens in real life. <laughs> right, right. That's a very interesting distinction. I'm, I'm not very familiar with operas in, in and of itself, so this is very interesting. Um, and this opera is in French? It is in French, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, will there be any way for the audience to know what's going on? Yes, we have this uh, surtitle technology where mm-hmm. the translation is projected in real time. Uh, over the stage so that you know, just like in a movie, you know what's going on. Uh, you don't have a word-for-word translation, so you do actually get more out of it if you know the, the, the actual text, but it's not required, and the music is so beautiful, and the, the action tells you enough about what's going on that the, the story is very effectively told uh, mm. with this combination of, um, of just what you hear, what you see, and the, the surtitles to keep you current with what's going on in the story. Mm, that's a relief. <laughs> so tell me about how your experience working on this opera show has differed from any of the opera shows you've done in the past. I saw that, you know, you've been involved in so many operas. Yeah. Has, was this one special in any way for well, you? Well, for one, I don't get paid. <laughs> oh. So I'm, I'm Jing back. Jing out, out of love of your heart. No, this is actually a very good thing. I'm earning something much better than money from this. Um, okay. I never finished my undergraduate degree uh, ah, when I was a student here. I really? won this big competition, the, the Metropolitan Opera Audition, uh, and I was invited into their Young Artist Development Program, and I wasn't quite done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I mean, it's a better opportunity. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say it's a better opportunity, but it was one that you know I, I felt I needed to take at of the course. time. Yeah. Um, the, the program here has actually grown into something absolutely fantastic mm-hmm. under Nancy Hermiston, who's the, the director of the opera division. Um, and, and coming back 10 years later, it's amazing to see how much has been invested. Uh, I mean, millions of dollars. She's reno- had this old auditorium renovated with a lot of support from uh, different foundations in the community and uh, private individuals, I suppose. And uh, uh, it's, it's quite amazing, not just in resources, but also in the, the growth of uh, the talent pool um, in, in the program. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, the deal is I come back and sing this opera with the students and I get my degree. 
um, to, it's, I had some credits that I had to fulfill, and it just so happens that this can fulfill those requirements, and I do have to do a little bit of academic work. Uh, and I, but it's something fun. that you really enjoy, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Oh, this has been a fantastic. The, uh, I suppose I was brought in to help inspire the students, but mm -hmm. actually, it, it for me, it feels like it's the other way around. Uh, that I'm, I'm, I really feel inspired by the the talent and dedication and skill of these students. It's, it's just, it's mind blowing. That's fantastic. How, how has that been? Because you yourself are a student. You're still finishing your. Um, degree and yet you're working with these students that are just about to go in to yeah. the beginning of their careers. Have you been kind of seen as the mentor of the class? Have you been building that kind of relationship with all these students? Yeah, it's it's in interesting to have kind of two hats on at once. Yeah, uh, I, where I figured. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, on the one hand, I'm a colleague. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I'm, I'm you know, kind of a, a returning a former student. Uh, and so I've been doing some coaching of some of the students, uh, particularly on their, their French dialogue, because mm -hmm. um, there's some actually some spoken dialogue yeah. that happens in this without microphones, often with an orchestra playing. Yes, I was just about and to ask, how do, this must be such a basic question, but how do you guys project when not singing in opera? What I, the first thing I tell the students is to get on YouTube <laughs> and 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 YouTube. do a search for Martin Luther King's "I Have a Dream" speech. Ah, okay. Really? Uh, and if you observe the way that he's using his language, it's 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 very very close to bel canto singing, which mm -hmm. is the 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 kind of singing that we do to get over the orchestra and at the same time have beauty, emotion, and it feels natural when you hear it. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you were to learn how to speak. In, in using Martin Luther King's technique for delivering oratory, the first thing you would notice is that it feels very, very strange. It feels very unnatural, and at first you'll be very discombobulated, and you can't maintain um, natural proportions in your speech. You start to accent things that aren't accented, and so it's actually a lot of meticulous work to build a delivery like that. Um, and it has to do with the, you know, uh, some technical things, how long you spend on vowels versus consonants and uh, this and that, and how you use your air. And... Mm -hmm. One thing I had a question for your performance um, in Manon is, how did, how did when, you got, when you got the role of Chevalier, did you have any sort of challenges addressing the role, or was it, you know, coming to you second nature? What was it like pre preparing for this role, essentially? Right. Well, I, I start very early. Mm -hmm. when I, so as soon as I find out that I have a, a role, especially one of this size, yes. I start very early just reading through. Um, I, I tend not to actually go back to the source material because mm -hmm. often it's been changed by the time Definitely. it's in the opera. Yeah. And while sometimes it can inform what you're doing, other times it can, it can just stand in your way. And you, you wind up with this sort of idée fixe, you know, that you want to yeah, uh, really. impose. Um, and so I stick with, with what the composer's written down as far as the text. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I read everybody's text. And I try to do kind of a, an analysis of what these, why people are behaving the way they're behaving. Um, I found uh, feminism was actually a very good... Uh, uh, kind of a philosophical approach for this opera because of the way a lot of things haven't changed. So we have uh, slut shaming in this yeah, opera. Yeah. We, <laughs> uh, we have we have this unequal, you know, where a man when a man sleeps around, it's sowing his oats or whatever, whereas mm -hmm. the woman is tainted. Uh, we have this class economics, mm -hmm. um, and we have the character who's normally Manon. Yes. Who's often criticized for being sort of, uh, you know, that she, she, she's too interested in material wealth, mm -hmm. and that she has a chance at true love, and she just blows it, and and goes off with someone else who's got the money. Mm -hmm. If you analyze this from a perspective of economics and who's making rational choices, this character is actually making the most rational choices of anybody in the show. <laughs> the difference is that consequences are applied unequally. She does make some mistakes, but she pays the price. So whereas at the end she dies, well, sorry oh, to give away the ending. Uh, spoiler alert! No, no. There's so you always know what's going to happen at the yeah, end yeah. of a Shakespeare, and yeah, you always opera. know it's a tragedy. Someone dies. Comedy. So, someone's getting married. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so we're we're dealing with the same set of circumstances there. 
Uh, and so the consequences for for the man is that he feels crappy. Yeah. And the consequences for the woman is that she dies. In this case, mm-hmm. um, uh, because of the the atrocious conditions uh, in the the deportation schemes that were carried out for getting rid of quote unquote undesirables mm-hmm. in Europe, mm-hmm. um, and she was bound for Louisiana, and she. Um, Okay, in the source material, she does make it to Louisiana. Um, but here, we, we don't go that far, and she dies. And probably from dysentery or some other horrible way to go from unsanitary conditions. And that has a lot to do with her class. Um, had she been wealthy? She'd much she would more have, better ride. Yeah, she never would have uh, been subject to these consequences. Mm-hmm. Had she been a man, she also never would have been subject to these consequences. But that does, sorry to interrupt, but that does bring up a really good discussion on, you know, class structure, because it's still very prevalent in um, our culture today, especially, let's say, for the homeless. People kind of, like, avoid them. They're not really, they're invisible. And even if they die, they're like, well, they are homeless. It was was bound to happen. Like, there is that lack of compassion. Well, I live in in Philadelphia. Yes. In the United States. And while we don't do this in Philadelphia, actually, in New York, they do do it. Mm -hmm. There's this policy of... uh, Instead of if you're in the homeless shelter, they will offer you kind of a free bus ticket to get out of town. Yeah. Uh, and they they try to they say they try to ship people off to family mm-hmm. uh, or somewhere where they can have, you know, some stability. But really, I get the feeling that the policy is actually just to kind of deport people within the country. Uh. But you're taking as far as if, if you're homeless and you, you don't have the resources for, to get back. You can't just, tr- you know, the, the idea of free travel doesn't is pretty meaningless if you can't even afford the ticket to get on the bus. And if anyone's ever approached you and said, you know, I just need money for a ticket, you, you know that that usually they're taking you for they're taking you for a ride. Yeah. And so our reaction is not going to be to give that person money. Um, and there's there's not a lot of resources for someone to come by that kind of transportation otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to me, this is a lot like deportation you know just just get them get rid of them mm-hmm. and then purify image, our image, community basically yeah basically for image yeah that's so interesting i've never really thought of operas in general having so much uh, so much deeper i guess social significance social and, commentary yeah, yeah yeah and i like i've seen plays that really do speak about these kind of things but um for yourself and your entire opera career, what do you think are some of the barriers that opera has in being able to be more than just something for like people in the ivory tower, people who right. have the kind of, Lap of leisure to yeah, be able to just hear great people sing? Like, What do you think are some of the barriers that opera has and that plays productions normally don't? Right. So, well, one that we've, we seem to have overcome quite a bit is our uh, ability to understand what's going on in the first place. Mm-hmm. So now you don't need to bring a very, very high level of education just to know uh, what's going on. You don't even need to bring a little translation of your own that you can follow. Uh, we have the, the surtitles, and you know somewhere like the Met actually has them in the seat in front of you, and you can push a button and get different languages. So if you come from a different country, you can have it in Spanish or in German or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You would Very like. accessible. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I, I think part of it often is actually we don't, uh, we tend not to trust the the timelessness of these pieces as, as artists. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of our productions try to rescue them from, from what they are rather than, um, I would say, going deeper into the, um, the universal elements. Uh, and and sometimes what we can wind up with is sort of a a pale imitation of of uh, of some some revolutionary edgy kind of theater um, that won't have as many constraints of time and place and um, and can can have more liberty to do that more successfully. Uh, and then other times, actually, we distill very well the elements and can mm-hmm. give something that is sort of revolutionary theater. Um, and by revolutionary, I mean showing us something new. Uh, so you might have a set that is, is just kind of suggestive of what's going on, and we distill everything into the, the relationships uh, so that we can present kind of a, it's like an emotional um, 
spiritual or shall we say like a jungle gym for your conscience where you go and you 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 train your 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 altruism and your um you know your your sense of morality i hate to say it but Mm -hmm. uh because it sounds a bit stuffy but (laughs) Uh, your, your sense of right and wrong goes for a little ride by going into these worlds that are, to us, a little bit harsher than reality today. But in other ways, actually, nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, That's really good to hear. And I think already you've kind of spoken about why people should go watch it. Like, it's sounds like such a relevant play um, or such a relevant opera. So I was wondering if you could do um, a short demo of one of your... Oh, man, from here. Of one of the... I don't know, um, just like maybe a short, like, 10-second part of what what you're going to do on the stage for our listeners. I mean, I guess first I could show you um, that uh, the the way we, we... we kind of um, produce the sound differently. Sure, that'd be great. So the way that we we cut through an orchestra with our opera singer voices, Mm -hmm. uh, for the men, we take some of the acoustic properties of speech. Now this is getting a bit technical. That's okay. Uh, But if you imagine every vowel sound in speech, which is everything that's not a consonant, uh, as kind of a sandwich with, uh, with like you know, bread, and then three more elements inside. So some lettuce and some meat and Mm -hmm. some cheese. (laughs) That I can understand. Okay. So what we do is we take, as men, uh, in our range, uh, sorry, uh, me and the other males, and Mm -hmm. uh, um, men who don't sing in the countertenor range, which is something else we can talk about entirely. Next time. Uh, Next time. Uh, We take the the bread at the bottom, and and then we, we take the cheese, but then we take the meat and the lettuce and the bread that's left in the upper three layers of the sandwich. We smush them together, and they start to occupy a range that is higher than what the orchestra is producing. So ah, the orchestra pr- is producing something that would cover your voice at a conversational level. Mm-hmm. And then what we do is we take these, they're called formants, these elements of the sandwich, and they allow us to distinguish one sound from another. So we take these top three, we smush them together, and we make a sort of uh, a singer's formant, is what it's called. And that happens between 2,500 and 3,500 hertz, and it gives you the impression that it's very loud. Uh But really all it's doing is resonating at a frequency that is perceptible over an orchestra. That's fascinating. Women, on the other hand, and uh, tenors like me, when we get into the upper part of our range, Mm Um, they don't smush the formants together to make the singer's formant. Instead, what they do is they give you sort of bread and a very strong cheese and then a very strong meat, and they put them together just so, so that, like the last gentleman who was here, um, they, they, they can kind of amplify each other, mm-hmm. and it works a lot like the instruments he was just showing you. It's basically a tube. And uh, at one end, you have, instead of lips, you have your vocal cords. And the sound that they make without the, what's on top of it is just like that he gets from his lips when he's huh. blowing through his, his trumpet or whatever instruments that he's created out of trash. Fascinating. So for all you listeners who want to see this in action, you should definitely go see the UBC opera Manon. Um, do you mind letting us know the details, the dates, the when and the where, as well as how people can get tickets? Uh, yeah, so I believe it's the, uh, the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, and the 8th of uh, November. Uh, and they can get tickets at the Old Auditorium and online. And the Old Auditorium is located... Uh, Near Kerner Library. Yes, right behind it almost. Right by the music building. Yeah, right by the music building. And, and where is this going to be? Uh, this is going to be at the old auditorium as oh, well, which yeah. is one of these uh, fantastic really pieces beautiful. of... of yeah. yeah, and this was had gone to, um, had gone to seed um, until... I, I'd never... When I came back, I was just blown away because it's been completely renovated, like mm-hmm. millions of dollars put into it and it's absolutely beautiful 
Fantastic. Um, I want to go see it already. <laughs> um, so thank you so much, Philippe, for being on our show today. Um, we are going to take a few short commercial breaks, and we will be right back. Are you aware? Radio. Alternate Thursday, 6 to 7 p.m. at CITR 101.9 FM. Profiling music and musicians take the root of positive action over apathy. Hello? As one poor soul tries to find something good to enjoy on the radio. Let's see here. Uh... Everybody dance, dance. What, you don't like to dance? Everybody dance. Everybody... God, this is awful. Thank you so much, Philippe, for being on our show. Isn't there anything, 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 anything? Listening to the radio these days can be distressing. Fortunately, here at CITR, our programmers choose the music that they play, so our charts reflect what people actually listen to. To find out what's really topping the charts, pick up a copy of Hello? Beatroot or Discorder magazine, Hi. or check us Hi, out online at citr.ca. No, Unless, this course, is Brad Lattice from Personal listening to the chart-topping single, Everybody Dance. What you don't like to dance? Everybody dance. Everybody dance. Hello, arts reporters. Welcome back to our show. As you probably heard a little bit, we do have another guest um, for our show today. And um, Jake here is going to tell you about who our guest is. Okay, so our guest today is Brad Ladusseur. I really hope I pronounced that correctly. He is Fantastic. the... I, I, thank you very much. That that would be... That'd be him right now. Uh, he is the head of... Is event cinema for um, for Cineplex, which is this lovely alternative cinematic program, which allows us allowed me last week to see Hamlet broadcast live from London, and let in England. That is my my hometown of London, Ontario. It's, it does not broadcast. We have anymore. established that, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's always kind of disappointing uh, for that, but it's uh, so that it's a fantastic show, and so I now I've heard that there was an encore about that. Is that correct, there, Mr. Lady, sir? Uh. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, just call me Brad. Thank you. Um, no problem. It's, it's great to be joining you today. And uh, yeah, Encore's performances start November 7th. All right. Excellent. And now, in addition to the, the, uh, the Encore of this one, there were some very impressive trailers right before that and uh, for some very different shows, uh, A Winter's Tale of Mice and Men. And it just, what was the impetus behind choosing these shows? I think that really... Uh, it looks uh, to the national that um, the national theater that they're not just uh, staging and, and broadcasting events that are happening right at the national uh, in London. That they're working with other theater companies. So, for instance, *Of Mice and Men* was shot last year on Broadway uh, with James Franco and Chris O'Dowd. Uh, two years ago, uh, Kenneth Branagh's *Hamlet* was uh, *Macbeth*. Sorry, was actually. Um, uh, shot uh, during um, the uh, festival uh, presentation. And I think it was actually that um, staging that got Kenneth Branagh interested in, in bringing uh, the Kenneth Branagh Theatre Company um, to uh, cinemas and have uh, The Winter's Tale uh, coming up this Christmas uh, in theaters. So um, they, they work with other companies. They work with the Don Mar Warehouse. Um, and so it's not just what uh, is, is happening this season at the National. Uh, they really are reaching out to, to others uh, in the community of live theater and saying, we have a great vehicle. We think you've got something really special, and we can bring it to audiences around the world. And these have some pretty impressive credits in them. Like uh, you mentioned that uh, of Mice and Men is Chris O'Dowd and James Franco. Now, that's a very interesting onstage combination. It, it seems like one. I'm assuming uh, James Franco is Lenny? Uh, uh, James Franco was not. Um, 
So Lenny was played by O'Dowd, I believe. Oh, no, wait. Was, oh, oh, I'm sorry. That was... <laughs> That's, that'd be right. My, my bad. I'm sorry. I I I admit I didn't under I I didn't proportion that's this right. properly that's in my right. head. That's all right. <laughs> my bad. But the, these are so, that, like that's some pretty impressive drawing. That's a that's got to have some draw in it. And there's also uh, there was also a production I I remember in the credits with Tom Hiddleston in it. That's a repeat. Uh, the Nationals actually occasionally um, they feel that they've got a real gem that audiences may have missed or people want to see again. Um, and uh, and they're bringing uh, Coriolanus back, uh, an, uh, another Shakespeare uh, piece that um, audiences. And I think over the last two years, the attendance and interest uh, of uh, our audiences in Canada, I can speak to Canadian audiences, uh, have really grown. Um, the national, uh, while oftentimes um, will have stars like Hel- Helen Mirren. Or, or James Franco on screen, you can see many of the fantastic actors in smaller productions, mm-hmm. um, things like The Kitchen, which were just absolutely stunning. Um, audiences sometimes miss, and so occasionally they will bring those back. Uh, once that, uh, uh, customers will write in and say, hey, you know what, I really missed that. I've heard great things. I saw your 50th anniversary special. And what are you going to bring back? And so they listen to their audience, and, and once or twice a year, they'll bring something um, over the, that they've done uh, over the last five years. So kind of a greatest hits type of system. Yeah, but, you know, a lot of people might have missed a small play called London Assurance, which was actually quite funny. And, uh, and so we know that that's one of the ones that audiences have heard about but maybe not seen. Now our last guest was uh, was an opera singer, and he, it, uh, there's broadcasts from the Metropolitan Opera in London uh, to, that have that have come uh, across the airwaves. And we're wondering, uh, is it so th- there? There are operas broadcast through Cineplex, yeah? Correct. So we do. Uh, we are now in our tenth season of broadcasting uh, the Met Live in HD. Uh, we do ten or eleven operas per season. Uh, they go out live, and then we do encore performances as well a few weeks later. So uh, are there as many operas as there are plays broadcast? Are there more plays than operas? Is it, is it about even? Uh, right now, uh, in terms of uh, new productions and, and original productions each, each season, um, we're seeing close to uh, the same between, say, the Metropolitan Opera and, uh, and the theater pieces that are coming together. We're, we're seeing about 10 to 12 each. All right, and these are are the, the now, there's there's obviously input from Britain with um, from London. There's from New York. Are there any uh, Canadian in, input from Canadian theater like Stratford? Um, we do uh, Stratford. That when I when I talk about ten or twelve uh, a year, um, two to three a year come from Stratford, Ontario. Um, just uh, this past season, uh, we had uh, three productions. Um, one was uh, Confiore starring uh, in King Lear. Uh, which kicked off our season uh, of three, which is one of the the big productions from last season. Um, they're shot uh, entirely with uh, eight cameras here in Stratford, all high definition, uh, full digital audio. Um, Stratford's put a lot of time and effort, uh, and Anthony Cimolino, who's the uh, director, really believes that um, the Shakespeare's canon of, of plays need to be shot and preserved. And so over the course of the next five or six years, he's shooting two or three a year, all Shakespeare, and, uh, and really bringing um, plays that are not often seen uh, to audiences across the country. So this year we had uh, King Lear, and we had King John, and we had uh, Anthony and Cleopatra as well. A lot of royalty in that one. And it was, uh, yeah, it's, uh, and I, I think they've got uh, four lined up for next season. It's going to be pretty spectacular. That, that uh, as I, I'm personally, I love Shakespeare myself. That sounds like a very admirable ambition. That's uh, best of luck to them. Now, um, I gotta, we got to wrap it up, but I, was, I just, I, I do want to ask you, was there any specific production you would recommend right now? Like, uh, if, if you had to see one play, which one would it be? Would it be Of Mice and Men, Coriolanus, Hamlet? Um, well, I got to see Hamlet as a broadcast, and I was in the U.K. at the time, and I sat with a, a British, mainly British audience at the Odeon Leicester Square in London, and I saw it via satellite, just like uh, Canadian audiences uh, saw it. Uh, and I think what's, what's great about Hamlet, and 
um, it, it's, it's, it's extremely accessible. It's very cinematic. Um, there are moments, uh, all of the right comedic moments that are delivered by Cumberbatch. Yeah, he's got the uh, excellent it, comic timing there. Yeah, and, and I think that it's those, those high-definition cameras that, that get you close to him um, that you wouldn't get that if you were in the live theater that night. Um, as, as, as big as movie theaters are, those 60-foot screens bring you close to the action um, rather than being in, in the back stall standing and you got cheap seats for a live production and maybe you miss something. Um, I think audiences will be able to, to really appreciate um, what the director's done with this. It's extremely cinematic. The sound is fantastic. Cumberbatch has an amazing, an amazing motion, an emotional range during that evening. Oh, yeah. um, and, uh, and people are going to be very pleasantly surprised that you can sit through three and a half hours of, of Hamlet and, and be thoroughly entertained from the beginning right through to the end. I, I, I can agree. And, you know, at the theater I went to was, was completely sold out. I, I don't think one person walked away an unhappy customer. And that's great to hear. There, there you go. So, recommendation if you Hamlet's on on November seventh, yes. November uh, screenings from November seventh, and multiple screenings are already uh, on sale. All right, so that's fantastic. You heard the man. If you can see it, go ahead. We we endorse it. All right, it's been a pleasure, Mr. Laddie, sir. Cheers. Great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Jake, for that awesome interview. We are going to have another short commercial, and we'll be right back. Listening to the same music day in and day out, and want to try something a little different? Well then, how about listening to Asian music? Now, I don't mean it like... Open Gangnam Style! Nor like... She bangs! She bangs! Oh, baby, but she moves, she moves. I'm talking about a little more like. And a little more like. And also a little more like. And definitely something like Hello. Hello. Welcome back, arts reporters. Hi there. Is this TJ Daw? This is TJ. Hi, um, I am from the Arts Report, and we were to have this interview scheduled today, and you are right now live on air. Would it be all right if we ask you a few short questions in the last two minutes we have of our show? By all means. Thank you so... I hope so... you don't mind the background noise. No, thank you so much no, for being all, so flexible with us. Um, we do apologize for calling you so late. Um, but no quickly, worries. tell us about um, 52 Pickup. What is this? Okay, this is a play about a relationship, and it's told in 52 scenes. So the actors have a deck of cards, and the title of each scene is written on each of the playing cards of the full deck. Mm-hmm. And the play opens with them throwing the cards up in the air. The, the cards scatter all over the place. Uh-huh. And then they pick up one card completely at random. They read the title, and they perform that scene. And when it's done, they pick up an, another card, also at random. They read the title. They perform that scene. Hmm. And so on and so on and so on until they get through all 52 scenes which, of course, are going to be played in a different order every single time it's performed, and that tells the story of this relationship from the time the, first, the characters first meet until after they broke the meet randomly on the street and everything in between. That's a lot of improvisation. I heard that a lot, that the people that you chose for this were comedians and not actors. So tell me about that. Well, I'm not actually involved in this particular production of it. I co-wrote the original script and came up with the idea, but this is an independent company doing their own, so they just pay me royalties and they do whatever they want with it. <laughs> so I guess but, what, but, what, what made you kind of like have this idea, this concept in the first place? Well, there's the fact that when you think back on any experience, but especially when you think on a relationship, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily remember it in chronological order. You might remember a random moment or you might remember a happy thing right before you remember a sad thing. Yes. And then there's also the fact that it struck me as just a really interesting way to tell a story. 
You know, like it's unique to the medium of theater. And I, I like theater that does things that movies can't do and that books can't do. This is unique to that model. So if an audience member comes back and sees it two nights in a row or three or five nights in a row, they're going to see a different show every single time. And I really love that. You know, one of the mm -hmm. theater experiences that really got me into theater in my late teens was going to see Vancouver Theater Sports. Now, that's entirely improvised. This show is actually scripted. You know, all 52 of those scenes are completely scripted. Just oh, okay. the improv part is not knowing which one's going to come next. Mm. But still, there's kind of a danger and a sexiness to it being, you know, it's live. Yeah, it's live. It's like kind of like a live wire. You got to know how to connect one piece to another piece. That's right. It's different every time. It's, there's an excitement that comes with that. The actors are, you know, you can't phone in this show. You have to pay attention because you know anything can come up at any second. You blink, you miss it. What it reminded exactly. me of a little bit structurally is uh, the movie Five Hundred Days of Summer, but randomized. Yeah, and actually, uh, I, it took me a few years to see Five Hundred uh, Days of Summer, and then. In those intervening years, a lot of people came up to me and said, somebody took your idea and turned it into a movie. <laughs> there are some startling similarities between specific moments in that movie and specific scenes in this play. Is there an hmm. Ikea scene? Is there an Ikea scene? <laughs> Pardon me? Is there a scene in Ikea? In Ikea? No. no right. But there is a scene. There's a scene in 500 Days of Summer where the guy's walking down the street and he's just so in love yep. that he breaks into song and dance and everybody joins in. Oh, yeah, the, the Hall of Oats. Yeah, that's yeah, and there's a monologue in 52 Pickup about exactly that, about oh. that feeling of being in love, and you're just so alive, and you're so happy, and you're smiling at everybody, and it's almost like they're smiling back, or you're walking down the street, and you start dancing, and everybody joins in. Like, it's, it's exactly the same as that movie. It just killed me. Well, this sounds like a fantastic, energetic play that people should all go out to go um, see. So do you mind just giving us quickly the details of when this performance is happening, where it's happening, and where people can get tickets? The venue is called the Havana Theater, and that's on Commercial Drive. It's kind of on the, the north end of Commercial Drive near Venables, 1212 Commercial Drive. The web address is 20somethingtheater.com, and I believe you can get tickets there, and uh, also at brownpapertickets.com, and you can also just show up at the door. The dates, off the top of my head, I don't know what they are, but it's like late, late October into early November, or I think it's mid-November, mid something like that. That sounds great. I'm sure people can be able to Google this and find out all of the specific dates as well. So thank you so much, TJ, for um, giving us just a bit of your of your time to talk about this really cool event. Such a teaser. No worries I wanna, at all. I want to know Seriously. more about this. I want to know more about this. This would be a hard show to spoil, though. <laughs> yeah, it would be a really hard show to spoil. Well, You know, yeah. here's a crazy thing. People see it, and they don't believe it's really random, because there's always coincidences in the order. So if anybody ah. really believes that it's a fix, I invite them to come back multiple times. Mm -hmm. And they'll see this. I think they should come back multiple times. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, TJ. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. All right. And that ends off our sh show, um, Arts Reporters. Uh, next up, uh, we have Sharing Science. And their Sharing show science. is going to be on robot ethics. So please do um, oh my God. continue to robotics, tune in. Huh? Um, yeah. We're going to end off the show also with a quick shout-out for Classica. This is an um, international collaboration, a sharply funny musical reinvention of a true story that asks, what, we, what can we accomplish by using real life as material? So for more information on that, lawsuits, we are going to be posting up um, information about it on our Facebook and Twitter. Thank you so much for tuning in our sh on our show. Thank you, Jake. Always a pleasure. Thank you, me, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> and we will see you again next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Sharing Science Radio. We're broadcasting from CITR 101.9 FM on unceded Musqueam territory at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. We cook you up science that goes down smooth. Here you'll hear about how science is done, who's doing it, what it's telling us, and why it matters to you. I'm your host, Alan Manning, and with me today is Rohit Singla and Nathan Evitz. Our show tonight is all about robot ethics. Robots and computers are making more decisions that affect our daily lives, 
From healthcare to war, split-second choices made by a computer program may have serious implications. So how do we design machines to recognize the consequences of their actions? And who do we hold responsible when something goes wrong? And finally, was setting fire to your Furby when you were 12 years old a barbaric act of torture? Well, we'll try to address some of these questions at least. Rohit's going to talk about some of the ethical issues with robots and how humans view their mechanical creations. Nathan then leads us down an intricate robotic path of love, money, and war. Already sounds pretty human to me. And after that, Rohit and I will geek out and dive deeper into these questions. Now, if tonight, at some point, the broadcast cuts out, the computers in the recording booth have become self-aware and 